2: Hello and welcome to the US Step Podcast. I am your host, Kane Pittman, and we are brought to you today by our friends at ShipStation. ShipStation helps you get your orders out quickly, save money on shipping costs, and keep your customers happy. Uh, Our our Blue listeners can try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use the promo code Blue. All you need to do is go to shipstation.com and then enter the promo code Blue. That's shipstation.com and promo code Blue. Now, You may have noticed that I did not introduce Ty today. Ty is, uh, if he's not out at uh, the Wisconsin Herd, uh, meeting meeting the new coach down there, he's at his his day job, and he's pretty busy right now, but we are very fortunate uh, to have a a guest here, one of the the better writers, certainly in my opinion, uh, right now getting around uh, in the NBA. And if he's not writing, another feature is writing a book. We have from 538 Chris Herring. Thank you very much for joining us. Which is uh, pretty early on a Friday for you.
1: Oh, it's not a problem at all. Thank you for staying up late so that we can get this done. <laughs> get the invite.
2: Yeah, it's definitely been a uh, a process since uh, since I moved back here. Even with Ty, every time we go to record, it, it definitely takes uh, a fair bit more preparation than than it normally would. But we we've, we've, we've figured this out and uh, we're, we're glad you can join us. Now, I spoke a little bit about this with Ty in previous episodes. We're going to go through, uh, I guess, the state of the East, and, and we've focused a lot on what the Bucks have done, and I'm certainly going to uh, get some of your opinions with that. But, but right off the bat, I mean, uh, again, I, I, there's been a lot of talk about the West and obviously what happened uh, with the Clippers and, and also the Warriors, the Lakers, all these teams. But when we look at the East... Just you know, very you know, right off the top, is there a clear? And mostly, I'm talking about teams that we believe are going to be in the playoffs. I mean, if you're talking winners and losers, then sure, we could say Charlotte is a loser. That's fine. But uh, do you have a clear winner, and then perhaps a clear loser from the east uh, after free agency?
1: Um, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, people will have different opinions on different things. Uh, I mean when you're just looking at the top tier of those teams before and after, I think the Raptors, obviously, but, um, you know, even their situation was interesting. Um, if they could have kept Kawhi, how they would have had to do that. It would it have kind of saddled them long term in a way that would have made Masai Ujiri uncomfortable. Um, he's always been a wheeler and dealer. And I think that he, he finds ways to get things done. He's been very good at making or keeping the Raptors competitive in the past in situations where it didn't look like they were going to be able to do that very well. And so, um, you know, there's no way to spin it other than to say that they, they lost out here, but they also knew that that was a possibility the whole time. And they came out as, you know, the biggest possible winner that you possibly could have been um, this past summer. And so I think that's okay. And, you know, there's no way to even criticize anything that they did with that. I think that they did literally the best they could, but aside from that, um, you know, like like you said, Charlotte. I think you have to look at, and that's obvious. As far as the contenders, no, I don't. I don't really think that there was like a a, a very straightforward loser. Um, you know, I think that really, and it, it's boring. You kind of have to take a, a wait and see approach with some of this stuff. I think that, um, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk about this because it's central to the team that you wrote about. Uh, I, I kind of feel like any of the contenders that had either kept or acquired Malcolm Brogdon would have been in really good position just because I kind of feel like that was a big, to me, that was kind of a big domino as far as keeping the Bucks where they were. I feel like it would have put the 50s over the top if they had gone and gotten him. I, I feel like, you know, I understand the Horford signing, at least to some extent I understand it. I feel like they might have been better off getting um, a point guard at that level and then maybe trying to find someone who could be more serviceable without having to go get, you know, a borderline all-star center to back up beat or to play alongside Embiid. Um, you know, I, I just kind of feel like with some of the concerns that we talk about and we'll have with Ben Simmons that maybe getting uh, a Brogdon would have been helpful there. And I thought that that would have been an interesting move for them there. Um so so we'll see. I mean I you know, I, I like um I like what the Pacers did and making the move for Brogdon. I feel like, you know, it was a little bit rich for what they did, but I think they had some good value signings and, and did a good job of replacing the talent that they lost from their own roster this summer. Um but you know, it's hard to really identify a clear loser. I mean, if anything, maybe you look at the Celtics and you say that um, you know, you don't expect them to be as good or, you know, that they lost talent at you know, arguably a point guard, but definitely at center with Horford going down to Cantor. But I feel like even in that situation, stuff could have been so much worse uh, for them. You know, when you're replacing an All Star with another All Star, and you know, and you're getting someone who can be productive at least on one side of the floor, and maybe at times on both, uh, and Cantor that you could do a lot worse than the Celtics did. So, I, it's really hard to identify a, a clear loser among the teams that are. Likely are going to be close to the playoff race in the East. I think most of the teams did pretty well for themselves.
2: Yeah, I would, I, really, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that's what's so interesting about the East, though. And and you did touch on the Raptors, and and first of all, I mean, I completely agree. If you not only if you're a Raptors fan, but if you're the Raptors franchise, and I, and I know there was some talk where. Uh, you know, people are, are asking Kyle Lowry how he feels about Leonard or whether, whether there's any hard feelings. I mean, Lowry was in the playoffs year after year after year and not making it. He got that championship. I, I don't think, uh, uh, and they certainly would. And if you're the Raptors franchise, you don't look back on that and, and regret that decision. That was always part of the uh, equation. And when you make that trade, do you understand that you might not win a title. So they certainly uh, came out on top there. But I, I do think with the East, you uh, It does feel like there's been a lot of teams stagnate. And I don't think anyone really had a horrific uh, free agency period for those contenders. But I think with all the teams, you can say they did this, which is good, but this might be a problem. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. But we can go straight into Brogdon. I know you touched on that. So uh, obviously that deal is something I've certainly said that I, I understand why. Uh, the Bucs weren't willing to pay that, and it was certainly going to be a luxury tax situation. I know that's a, a, certainly a sensitive topic for Bucs fans who, who think the owners perhaps should have just gone and done that, and they certainly had the capability to do that with Brogdon being restricted, but um, there, was a, there was a few other factors involved there. Just straight up, is that I, I know you talked about Philly potentially him being a good fit there, and he's certainly a guy, when you have those top three or four guys, he can be the guy that can push you, uh, to that next level, and I think we saw that a lot with the Bucs, but is he a guy, if you're Milwaukee, that under no circumstances you would have let leave, or, or where did you see that from the Bucks' point of view?
1: Um, here, here's the thing with, with that. I mean, it's easy to say as someone who's not paying the money for it. Exactly. You know, yeah, I I think we have to start with that. I think really – What's interesting about it all is that me and I think a lot of other people and a lot of people that kind of think the way I do as far as the analytics behind everything we watched the the Eric Bledsoe extension during the season and said that seems really smart that seems like a a good deal for both sides you know it, it avoids Bledsoe the headache of having to figure out free agency at some point but it also gets the Buck a, a young, a relatively young player who, you know, is a borderline all-star, can be a borderline all-star, who has played with this team now for what was his second year and could potentially be a really good fit with this team. Uh, and then you watch the postseason. And, and <laughs> thinking about it that way, there are two ways to think about the question you asked. One is to say that Brogdon is good, but how much better is he? if at all, then Bledsoe. Um, And two, if if he is, um, is he so much better that it justifies going over the cap because now you've already paid Bledsoe. And so now you're kind of already in that situation unless you think you can ship Bledsoe off somewhere else, which I don't necessarily know that that would be a a reality. Or if so, you know, what you'd have to give up to make that happen. Um, You know, there are other things to consider with Broadman too. I think if he had been... um, a one and done, for instance, and had this sort of showing the last couple of years that maybe, you know, you might think that his upside was even higher than what it is uh, because he'd be younger and so maybe you'd be willing to pay him more based on that or maybe you'd be willing to to go above the luxury tax. The one thing I will say um, with the luxury tax, I think it's a pretty dangerous thing Uh, and I totally understand that Milwaukee is a smaller market. You know, I've written before about how long it was, I think, what was it, like 28 or 30 years that they went without um, without starting a regular season at home. And the reason for that yes. was being that they wanted to have their first home game on a weekend because of the fact that, you know, it's really difficult for fans to get out and to have a sellout for a first game when the game is on a Wednesday or a Thursday. So I understand the dynamics at play are different for the Bucks, But I think it is, a, generally speaking, a really, really dangerous thing to be a top one or two seed and to have a top five talent. And, you know, wherever you want to put Giannis in the top five, top six is fine by me. I think you can make an argument for it at this point. Um, and obviously obviously can make a very strong argument for the fact that if he's not the best player right now, that he can be uh, very soon, if not this season. Um, I think it's you're playing with fire a little bit when you decide that you're not going to pay the luxury tax when you're at this level and when you're in the position that you are with Giannis and his decision about a potential supermax. So I I see it both ways. Um, I think that they can still easily win 55 and maybe approach 60 wins again. Um, But I, I think the real answer to whether or not this will have been a wise decision not to do that will probably come in the playoffs. And I think if Bledsoe is able to play better and to play more like the regular season Bledsoe we've seen, then it doesn't burn you. Um, If he doesn't play well in the postseason and we see Brogden play really well at that point or play about the same as what he does in the regular season where he's a steadying hand and I think he's a very specific sort of guard that doesn't really need the ball to be effective that does several other things, um, I think that's where it could potentially hurt you. And I, I think that's what's interesting and why I see him as being such a good fit for Indiana is that that's a team that really struggled when uh Oladipo went down when they didn't really have the ball they people they could just throw the ball to um Bogdanovich was not even really that sort of person and all of a sudden you know the difference it makes to have someone like Brogdon that can handle the ball along with Oladipo who's a good shooter off the ball um into multiple positions that we saw Brogdon do several times Brogdon played a, I think even better than he normally is in the playoffs for long stretches and I think You don't want to take that sort of thing for granted, particularly when you saw how badly Bledsoe played at times. So it it could be very costly, but it's too early to tell. I think you know the proof will be in the pudding, and I think year three for for Bledsoe with the Bucks and having a a full year with another full year with them will get a better sense of whether or not it was a good decision or not.
2: Yeah, I I totally agree, and and I will say that there's been a lot of. I guess, debate amongst Buck fans when you talk about the the Bledsoe extension and and, and we really said when we were discussing this in this podcast, certainly when we were discussing it at, at games, we would say that this Bledsoe contract at the time you know, in early March when it was looked like a great deal, but you knew that that was, the, that, that was either going to hold as, as the feeling or it, it was going to go the other way if, if he sort of uh, didn't have a great playoffs again, which we saw. So, I, I do feel that with Bledsoe, you have a guy that is uh, going to win you a hell of a lot of games in the regular season, and we've seen that uh, defensively. The things that he does, uh, you know, he really contributed to a, a, a heap of wins. And I, I think if you put Brogdon in that position, then you don't win the 60 games last season, but certainly in the playoffs to this point, what we've seen uh, historically over the last couple of seasons, Brogdon's probably the guy you want in the playoffs, so it's going to be interesting. Uh, Brogdon missed 34 games last season, or the season before, that's 17-18, and then 18 uh, last year in the regular season, then the first two rounds, so injury history there is going to be um, interesting to watch as well, and I, I think that that was part of the concern, I would have to say, when you're talking about a guy that Arguably, you can you can say he was potentially the, the fifth most important guy in offense, maybe the fifth most important guy in defense. I don't know. You can certainly debate that in the starting lineup and talking about. Um, but they add Wes Matthews. Is there any way that you, when you look at Wes Matthews, a, a great catch and sh- uh, shoot guy, obviously a little older now, uh, is he a guy that is going to be able to fill particularly offensively some of that void? Certainly not off the dribble, but uh, as a, as an outside shooter.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there is that it's, it's hard to, and I think Brogdon, what you're saying, he, he can be, I, I think he's one of those things that is kind of a safety net in some ways where a lot of times, he's not making spectacular plays, but um, he's a player that generally will not beat you by beating himself. He's not going to make plays that you look at and you scratch your head, uh, and I think that, that's the difference with him and Bledsoe sometimes is that Bledsoe is so unbelievably talented and athletic that sometimes he'll try something that he'll think he'll have the ability to pull off that might be there in the regular season then it's not in the playoffs, and so he might have a string of plays like that, and I remember watching the series with the Raptors and thinking that a few times where the defense is baiting him to shoot. They're, they're playing 15 feet off him. And, you know, it is very hard to live life when you won't take that shot immediately because then you're hesitating. And it kind of the perception is that you're afraid to take the shot. So it makes the defense feel even better about leaving you alone. But then not only would he hesitate, but then he'd dribble all the way to the rim and he would go like one or two dribbles too far and then just get stripped of the ball or or get his shot blocked. And it, it just kind of seemed to be reinforcing everything about what we're saying. So Brogdon just, you know, he makes quicker decisions. Um, and I think with Wes Matthews, he's not he's not someone that's going to do much of anything putting the ball on the floor. I think maybe there's a point in his career where he could. Um, you know, he's had a serious injury. He's a little bit older at this point, point. Um, and I think sometimes where he can get himself into trouble is that he does – he he does some things that maybe aren't off the dribble but he tries to do some things offensively. And so um you look last year at his efficiency. He tried to post up a lot. Uh, sometimes with within the offense for Indiana and he, even before that and it just it just went nowhere. I mean, he was one of the least efficient players from that standpoint. He absolutely can be effective as a catch and shooter, but you know, I also think he's lost some effectiveness as a defender too, you know, he used to be a really solid one-on-one defender um, and someone that was capable of switching with with the Blazers. And, and like I said, that injury is just kind of brutal for anybody. Um, He hasn't been quite as good on that end either. And so I just kind of feel like there are times where if he's not shooting well, that you're going to look at him. Like, I think everyone views him as a smart player, but you're going to look at him and you're going to say, why do we have him out here? And and so that's, (laughs) That's the reality of that situation. Like I didn't, by no means did I dislike that signing. Somehow it wasn't a bad signing, but I just kind of feel like it's going to be one of the things where where it works, it really works, and when it's not working or when he's slumping, that it's going to be difficult. Um, and people are going to question his value when his shot's not falling, and so that happens. I mean, I feel like when you're signing people at that money, and I think the same is true of someone like Corver too. Corver is a wonderful shooter, you know, one of the best the game has ever seen. Um, but there are going to be times where he's not playable. And I think that that probably will uh, become more apparent in, in playoff series. And just going to be certain matchups where it's difficult to get them open and difficult to really make stuff work. But, I mean, that, that happens. And, and really, um, we think of people more so as far as what they used to be and how far the fall has been. But eventually, at some point, age-wise, that time always comes for everybody. And so... Uh, Wes Matthews, well, I, I think he's going to have very effective stretches. Um, but I just think that they're probably going to be balanced out more or less by the times where he's not.
2: Yeah, and I think if if you are a, a Bucs fan and you want to beat Glass – half-full about the, the Matthews thing, then what you say is correct. You're not going to want him uh, handling the ball, trying to put the ball on the floor. I know it, you know, the feedback you got from a lot of Pacers fans and some of the stuff you saw uh, from Indiana was Matthews probably feeling like he came into this situation. And I do think he wanted this as well when you talk about where he wanted to go in the buyout market. But uh, he, he wanted that situation, he wanted that role. He's probably not capable of that, mate. I think the Bucks. Are going to be hoping uh, that he can fit into that fifth starter. You know, if you project that he's probably going to start and not have to do those things. But uh, I think you're right that there's probably going to be times where uh, he will uh, look probably his age and look like a guy that's had a had a serious Achilles injury. So yeah, I, I think that it was a decent stopgap. But it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out. And obviously, Corvo at, at, at that age, uh, it, it, you know, I think Buck's going to try and keep the minutes down as much as he can during the regular season. But they did pick up Robin Lopez as well. And I'm interested to know, not so much what Robin Lopez is going to bring on the floor, but do you think there is going to be a more entertaining duo around the league than the Lopez-Budlers next season?
1: It's hard to imagine that there would be one. I mean, I... They they were in the same city when I was covering the Knicks uh, for several years for the Wall Street Journal, and uh, you know the interplay between the two of them was was really fun, and um, you know I feel like for reporters the the quotes are going to be fun. Um, I'm sure on some level on a national scale it'll we'll probably get pretty old pretty quickly, but I, I imagine the fans in Milwaukee won't be able to get enough of that. It'll be very cool having them on the same team, and I think their personalities are just so. Is you know from having covered Brooke, and it's exactly the same thing with Robin. It's just they're they're so aloof, but you know it's funny because they're very smart, and you can tell that. But I think they like for the conversations to kind of be surface level. Um, so it, you know it's very fun uh, the, the two of them. So it, it's hard to imagine there being more interesting duo. <laughs> I'm trying to remember who all um, Bobon is going to. Where did Bobon go this this Oh,
2: well, He's with Dallas, but that's what I was going to say. We've lost Bobby and Toby, so, you know, I mean, the, the options are limited.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I would probably endorse the idea of, of Brooke and Robin being the most entertaining duo. But, you know, in, in all seriousness, I think they got a good player, too. I, I was kind of surprised that um, – maybe not surprised that the Bulls weren't able to trade Robin Lopez, but, you know, he would have had value to a lot of teams. It was very clear the Warriors had wanted him for a solid year or two, really. Yeah. Um, be able to pick him up off the, the waiver wire or whatever, or to pick him up as a free agent. Um, the guy sets really good screens. He's very similar to Brooke in the sense that he's great fundamentally at the rim and as a rebounder. And so he helps in that, you know, in that way. And, and the Bucks have obviously been um, a, an elite defensive rebounding team. And so he'll, he'll only add to that as far as helping other guys get defensive rebounds. Um, you know, he does not have the range of his brother, But it wouldn't surprise me at all, particularly in this offense, if he's been working on that really aggressively this summer to try to develop more range. I mean, he has become a pretty reputable mid-range shooter. Um, And I've talked to him before about the idea of, you know, trying to stretch his range out more because it's very clear that that can extend folks' careers. Um, If they can, you know, pop out to 21, 22, 23 feet – As opposed to 16 or 17. Now, I don't know how quick that transition will be for him, but um, I I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if the front office has told him, look, we're going to give you the green light for this because if you can make that shot and make it with any sort of regularity, the degree to which it'll open up the offense, the way it works with your brother right now is the way it could potentially work with you. Obviously, not on that sort of volume at all or that accuracy, but. Even if he could take one or two of those a game and knock them down, it, it does a lot of damage and it, it forces defense to play him a lot. Differently. So it'll be interesting to watch, but, you know, on any level, I think really you'll be looking at a team that should have pretty good space, whether it's Corver out there or, you know, I, I think between him, Brooke, Robin has shown enough range to where teams have to respect him a little bit from mid range. Um, it'll be really interesting to watch this team. We were talking about Wes earlier. Um, they're still going to have basically the spacing they did last year. And um, it, it'll be fascinating to see the way this team operates, just like it'll be fascinating to see the way that the brothers uh, operate together as brothers.
2: Yeah. I think everything we're hearing Adam uh, Milwaukee is that, that, as you say, that, that, that Robin is going to get that green light and he's going to shoot. I think that uh, when we talk about potential other destinations for, for Robin at uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't. you can't help but feel that there was some part of this where the brothers were like, okay, let's play together. Um, I also think that if Rob probably looked at his brother who last year is on $3 million and now he's got a $50 million deal from shooting those threes. Obviously, defensively do great things as well, but uh, that, as you said, can be a career changer. Another thing, uh, I think, probably, the Bucks felt that maybe they were one big body short last year and, and I want to talk about Philly a little bit now, and you touched on it uh, just briefly before. Uh, defensively, the Sixers, is this clearly going to be, uh, on, or clearly on paper looks like probably the, the number one defensive team in the league, right? I I,
1: I think they could be. I mean, I, I think it's a little early. No, I think anytime time you've got Joel Embiid as your centerpiece, that you have to be a little bit leery of health. And it's kind of crazy, too, to think. How quickly, um, how quickly the idea of a health situation can change and turn around. So, I mean, for years, we viewed the guy as Mr. Glass. And I think Steph, you know, we, we did that with Steph, too, where, you know, the idea of him being constantly hindered by injuries. We talked about Brooke being a $3 million player a year ago. I mean, Steph was making $12 million at a time where he won two straight MVPs. So, um, and was very heavily rooted in the idea of uh, the Warriors not wanting to gamble too much with regards to someone who hadn't shown that he could stay healthy. So um, I, I feel like that's worth watching. That's also part of the reason why the Sixers, in light of Embiid and the concerns about him, even when he doesn't have back problems or knee problems or anything else, uh, why they went out and decided to invest that money in Horford as opposed to investing it in a port card. So I mean, there's no question that if we're, again, if we're looking at just the potential of that team and assuming that every team stays healthy, you add Josh Richardson, you add Al Horford, who, you know, I think lost a third of a step last year, maybe we'll lose a little bit more defensively. Even if that's the case, you add them to what you already had with that group. Um, frankly, you take out Reddick, who was not a bad defender, but definitely was not really a good one either. Um, it's very easy to see how that team could be the best defensive team in the league. I, I think we have to see a little bit more about how the bench does. You know, I, I think people that's been the criticism all along is that that bench hasn't been great. Um, and, you know, they're relatively young with the exception of Horford. So maybe they lean more heavily on the starters, but again, this is a team that wants to keep and beat healthy. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see that Utah. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they change defensively. I don't feel like they lost an absolute ton on that end. I think they'll probably be okay. Um, but, you know, they've been a top two team defensively for the past couple of years. And so you have to keep them in that mix. And obviously the Bucs, I, I, I think you have to keep them in that mix. I think that, um, I'm interested to see with the Bucks how often, basically what happens with George Hill, because, um, he's a guy that I had always liked during his years with Indiana Got hurt um, in Utah and then went to Cleveland, and you know was just really starting to get healthy as he left there. Then the bucks pick him up, and you know, again, on the subject of Bledsoe and his consistency, Hill played really, really well and was really, really consistent um, and you know, is up there in age. But depending on how you look at you know the minutes he's had the last few years and the fact that he hasn't always been healthy that maybe he's got more left in the tank because he hadn't played as much as maybe you would expect someone of his skill level to. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that I'm curious about because I kind of feel like if Hill is good and can provide good defense, you know, and he's out there and Bledsoe um, is committed the whole season now that he's got this contract and the extension and everything, it'll be really interesting to watch because the Bucks obviously still have the potential to be a top defensive team. I think Brogdon is definitely a blow from that standpoint, especially when you watch him play defense in the playoffs, he's a very good, well-rounded player. I think that's what you lose from Brogdon is that um, while you have guys that have incredible skills, I feel like he kind of touched every aspect of kind of what makes a good player. And, and so it's hard to replace Jack of all trades sorts of players like that that are as smart as he is and, you know, and, and don't make mistakes the way that he does. Um, but the Bucks have all the potential in the world to, to kind of repeat or be a a top two or three defensive team too. So I'm very interested to see how it pans out. Um, like, like I said at the top, I think you can make a very good argument that Philly will have that sort of potential. Um, but they're you know, with them, I'm always looking at their health to figure out how far they'll go and, and what all they'll
2: accomplish. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm sort of glad you brought up here, because when we talk about Brogdon was, missed those first two rounds, or certainly the bulk of the first two rounds, came back for Game 5 against Boston. But uh, those two, and, and again, as you mentioned, Hill is obviously in his 30s now, uh, had a great prowess. But the one thing that both of those guys, Brogdon and Hill, uh, you... They're just so steady. And and when you were watching the Bucs and either of those two guys had the ball in your hands, you you felt comfortable they were going to make the right decision. And then defensively as well, they make smart decisions. But with the Sixers, this was one thing why I've always felt or I felt through last season that the Sixers were uh, a pretty good matchup for the Bucs and I felt that the Bucs were comf- comfortable with that matchup. And, and, and I maybe feel even more so that way now without uh, Jimmy Butler is that uh, the Bucks have, with the way they defend, and we know that that Horford dropping back in the paint, they protect the, the, the restricted area as well as anyone. Embiid really turned into a three point shooter. He was getting up nearly ten uh, attempts a game against the Bucks, which I, I think, if you are the opposition and Embiid's jacking threes, you're probably feeling pretty good about it. Ben Simmons does not have a good history against the, the Bucks uh, again for the same reason. Uh, is this Sixers team how big is the concern that come playoff time? That they are going to be able to be a team that similar to to what the Raptors really did to Giannis. Uh, if if you if it, when Embiid gets a catch, you can get the ball out of his hands, and someone else is going to have to take a shot. And in this case, maybe Tobias Harris is their best option to get a shot off the dribble in isolation.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talked about winners, losers. I, I like I said, I don't see the Sixers as a, a loser by any means, but man, like if I had you know as, as a Sixers. Fan, if I was a Super fan, it would probably frustrate me a little bit that we're bringing back Tobias Harris as opposed to Jimmy Butler, particularly after the playoffs, just because I feel like between those two, whether it's personality, whether it's playing style, whatever you want to look at, Butler very seldom were you going to forget that Butler was there, and you know, in particular, the Sixers' first game of the postseason against Brooklyn. Butler, what did he have, 32 in a game where Simmons played horribly, you know, Embiid. Um, I can't remember whether he played well or not that game, but the Butler basically had to step up. And I want to say that was a game where Tobias Harris maybe made one or two shots and he just kind of disappeared. Um, so aside from any concerns that you've got about Tobias and his defense, I just kind of feel like Butler would have been the guy you wanted to keep. He seemed to really like playing with the young players, and Simmons and Embiid, which we know is not always the case with him, as far as respecting other guys' work ethic and you know feeling complacent. Uh, the situation that he had in Minnesota, so absolutely. I mean, I, I think again the the Sixers are going to be a real challenge for anybody. You know, the Bucks or anybody else. But there, there was a part of me that basically feels like at some point you want and need Simmons to be your second best player there. And I think it can potentially be really tough for that to be the case if he's not going to shoot jump shots and if he's not able to get out and transition. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. You're going to want to force the ball out of his hands. Um, you know, some people will still knock the idea that the Sixers don't have enough shooting. Um, and I don't really know how to feel about that. I mean, they obviously had Redick last year, but now they've kind of replaced Reddick with other guys that are good shooters, maybe not great, in Richardson and Horford. And so it, their, their shooting doesn't necessarily come from the most traditional positions. They obviously have a, a guard, you know, whatever you want to call Simmons, who can't shoot and doesn't shoot. But then you've got a center who can and is an above-average shooter for his position. Um, and B will step out there. He's not necessarily an efficient three-point shooter at all. But he'll step out there, and I feel like a lot of times it's probably best to let him take that. Um, and you've got, you know, you've got a few other guys that are capable of shooting that are fine at that. Um, so I mean, absolutely that is one strategy that you can make use of. I also think it's really interesting that the Sixers took the liberty of going to go get Horford when they saw Horford as someone that sometimes gives and be trouble defensively. Um, and so I also thought it was interesting to kind of try to get out in front and try to take um a competitor away you know that makes life more difficult for one of your stars so so we'll see I mean I, I don't know I I think that probably have to take a while and see how everything looks with all these teams I don't know that I necessarily love any one team on paper more than the other between the Bucks or the Sixers I, I feel like they're pretty evenly matched I feel like their their strengths are kind of in different places um and it's, it, you know, honestly, like I said, I, I probably would have given a clear nod to Milwaukee if they kept Brogdon. Um, I guess in some ways I see that as making them a little bit weaker, but my opinion on that would be that I, I'm not completely sure that um, a lot of different parts as far as Robin and, and Kyle Corver and, um, and Wes Matthews, particularly guys that, you know, that they got on the cheap and people that have been, really, really useful in different roles before, but are a little bit older now. I don't know that those sorts of gains can make up for the sort of loss that Brogden presents. And I understand the dynamics behind why and, and everything like that, but I'm not totally convinced of that yet. That said, I still think they have a really, really good roster and can potentially win, you know, the whole thing with the roster they have. I just think that you have to kind of see how they look, whether this presents problems for them in some ways, that we might not have expected. And I think the same is true of the Sixers. Um, and, and and frankly, the idea of whether they'll be able to stay healthy with this group. I think there are concerns with Forker too, and spending that kind of money on him at the age that he's at, um, in an age range that doesn't really fit the rest of the team. It shows they're really going for it. But it also, you know, for that to be your backup behind a beat or someone to play alongside and beat is an interesting choice, given that, is as old as
2: you. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think when you talk, I think it's pretty clear at this point anyway, as, as much as we can we can predict what's going to happen, that, that Milwaukee and, and Philadelphia do feel on, on a tier on their own. But that's where it's sort of at the start where I said that you can look at the Bucs and say, yeah, they had a pretty good offseason, they're going to be good, but they're not going to find out how much they're missing Brogdon until the season <laughs> begins. And then the Sixers, you say, well, yeah, they bring in Hawford, but uh, they, they, as you said, they sign Tobias Harrison and, and lose Jimmy Butler. Probably not uh, the ideal situation. So below those two, though, uh, look, we, we sort of spoke about Boston a little bit. I, I don't know. I don't really know what to expect from Boston, but when you talk about Kyrie going from Boston to Brooklyn, a thing that's interesting to me is how Kyrie now... Is going to fit with another bunch of young guys. Obviously, there was a lot of stuff going on in Boston, and I think he goes from playing under Brad Stevens, who uh, you know, 12 months ago was the the untouchable king of coaching. With with the job he did with the Celtics without Kyrie, uh, that obviously didn't pan out with the young guys. Now Kyrie goes plays under Kenny Atkinson, another coach that that is getting uh, you know rave reviews right now. So how is he going to be able to fit in with this? Young, that's core. Considering that that Durant obviously is, is a big question mark, whether he can he even return at all this season.
1: I have no idea. Um, and you know, it, <laughs>
2: I think that's that's right, right?
1: Do any of us really know anything, about Kyrie, at this point? I mean, that that is a big question. I, I mean, I, I'd like to think that you know whether or not any of his struggles were really rooted in the idea that he was frustrated or really over that situation as a whole, maybe we'll get a a little bit of a chance to see that. I mean, he obviously put up very good regular season numbers regardless of what he and the team were dealing with last year. Um, But I also think it was interesting to look at what Jared Dudley said uh, about uh, the D'Angelo Russell situation and talking about how talented he was very clearly, but also saying um, that dude was taking a max from whoever offered him one. And, you know, basically kind of hinting at the idea that Uh, and I don't know that there should be, this is not to demonize anything about D'Angelo Russell, but basically saying that uh, I I think he said that he would have taken a max deal if he could have gotten one in South Korea or anywhere (laughs) if it had meant um, the max deal. And so I don't, you know, you're in the trenches with someone like that as far as making the playoffs and him kind of being the leader of that team, at least on the court. Um, You know, so I think there's something to be said for that and, feeling a loyalty to someone like that. But at the same time, if someone if someone kind of gives off that air all season, and you know, I don't want to validate what Dudley was saying too much because I don't have any inside knowledge of it, but if that was the feeling and if that was the kind of sense he was giving off the entire time, maybe it's not as hard a transition to go to Kyrie, who I think, frankly, is a better player than, than Russell. I mean, Russell's younger. He could be better over time. Um, maybe Kyrie won't age well, and maybe... Um, D'Angelo Russell will, will surpass him that way. Kyrie has had injury problems, very serious injury problems before. Um, and maybe, you know, he ends up having another one. So there are all sorts of things that could shift the tide there. But I, I do find Brooklyn to be one of the more fascinating teams this year, just because I don't think by any means we can assume they're a 51 team. I think a lot of people would like to do that. Um, our model at 538 which, you know, I should say I have no part in, you know, calculating how that works or, you know, I, I've always say that I don't consider myself to be very good at math, nor do I really like math that much. I, I think I just have a way of using numbers that kind of lends itself to the sport and writing about it. But, you know, I was kind of blown away when I saw what our projection was for the Nets. And they're basically kind of a borderline playoff team in the East, which seems harsh, but they, if I remember correctly, came out better, slightly better than what our um, projections had last year to make the playoffs. And if you remember, they made the playoffs in the last week of the season because they kind of struggled down the out. Um, but also, you know, the, the, the idea that Russell, while I don't think he's as good as Kyrie Irving, I don't think that he's as far off from Kyrie just in kind of a one-to-one standpoint, um, particularly depending on who he's playing with. And so – Obviously, if Durant was playing this year and he was healthy, I think you could write, you know, write it in the books now that the Nets would easily be a fifty one team. But without him, you know, there's no way to know that beyond the idea of even having to figure out how these guys will gel over time. Um, I don't think Kyrie guarantees a 50-win team. And I mean, we just we basically just saw that. And I think that you could argue that the team that he left had more talent than the one that he's joining now. Um at least veteran talent were, you know, been there, done that, guys, that um, it, it, at least with Horford, that he, you know, I think Horford would have been probably, you know, I, I don't know, depending on how you feel about Russell, Horford would have probably been the second best player on that next team. And so, you know, all of a sudden moving Kyrie there, um, he's got a, a lot of young talent around him. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they respond. I, I, I always will think it's interesting now in Kyrie, is playing with young guys the same way that I do with Butler, maybe not in as an abrasive a fashion. But at this point, after what we just saw happen um, and all the oddities that we saw happen with last season, I think you have to be very mindful and kind of watchful of the idea of, like, how does this situation play out? Does he get along with these guys a little bit better? Is he enjoying the situation enough to where he won't start any forest fires there? And um, really, you probably feel like you just need to ride out the one year um, to get to Durant because by that point you'd expect that they're able to win at a higher clip. But yeah, we have no clue how Kyrie is going to react to that, how his teammates in Brooklyn are gonna react and, and behave around that. Um, because these are hungry guys, Lavert, uh, Dinwiddie, who will still need the ball, um, may not be on the court with Kyrie all the time, but it's gonna be interesting to watch because there're gonna be some higher expectations now. Um, but also, just how fascinating is it that a team that was basically last in attendance in the NBA, all of a sudden gets two stars, you know, one of whom will be able to play right away. Um, and particularly when you think about the fact that this is, you know, the biggest market in the country, but also the second biggest team or second most liked team in the market. Um, it's interesting to consider from that standpoint, because we really haven't seen much like this happen before. So I'm fascinated to watch how they play out. Um, They'll have expectations, but I don't necessarily know that people are going to rip them if stuff doesn't work out right away. We have to see. Um, Kyrie is a is a very good player, but I don't know offhand whether he's so great that he can just lift a, a team into a top playoff seed. Uh, and really, when you think about it, the way that that signing was talked about, partly in conjunction with Durant, that's kind of the way it was talked about and the way it was framed is that you take a – what were they? A six seed. Um, and all of a sudden now you make you, you put Kyrie on that team. Durant is on the bench waiting to get healthy. A lot of people would expect that all of a sudden they can be a three, a two or three seed. I don't know that I see that. Like, I, I don't necessarily think they'll miss the playoffs the way our projection basically feels like as a, as a coin flip. But I could very easily see them being kind of in the same situation if not a few games better than they were last year. And that would be rough.
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, with Kyrie, and, and you touched on it, and it's sort of, it's interesting when you talk about the uh, the situation with Russell and, and potentially uh, his teammates knowing that uh, he was probably not going to come back, you know, regardless, depending on where that offer came from. I think that you just have to hope, if you're a Nets fan, that the the volatile situation of free agency not being Uh, on the horizon allows Kyrie uh, to relax and really buy into this. And also just be happy with the fact that he knows Durant is there. No, he's not going to be playing at the start of the season, but these two clearly came together and and want to play together. Um, And potentially that is enough uh, to make this situation workable uh, with these young guys. You you touched on all the young guys they have. I I think in the East and, and... there's a, there's a group of probably, you know, five, six, seven teams, and we're not even going to touch on them all. I don't know, Miami, you know, we don't really know what to expect from them. Indiana, obviously, with all Depot back is going to be a playoff team. But I can see the Nets being there. And if there is a situation where, and I don't know, you know, what the, what the real chances are, we're not probably going to know for a while. But if Durant comes back in March, gets a month of basketball in, and the, and the, pay, uh, the Nets end up a six or a seven seed, I mean, you're not going to want to play that team in the first round.
1: Yeah, no. You, I mean, you're not going to want to play any team that that I think has has the situation that that the Nets do if Durant is there. Um, no team will want to play them. In, in particular, again, if we're talking about a team that, let's say the the Nets are slightly better. Let's say they get a, a four seed um, with Kyrie, you know, basically with no Durant there. Um, I mean, regard. I mean, I feel like if Durant was you know, joining an eight seed uh, Nets team that no team would really want to play them. He would need to get his bearings and everything like that. But frankly, you know, if we're looking at a more conservative estimate, let's say that the Nets do finish right in the middle. Um, I mean, that that would be really, really interesting because then you're looking at a matchup where the Nets are going to get probably the top seed in the next round. Uh, it would set up really interestingly, to, to say the least. Um, I will say this though. I And maybe this is just me. Maybe we've all lost the right to kind of have a real firm opinion on this um, after what happened in in the finals. Um, Although a lot of us kind of were worried about watching Durant come back there, um, I would really love to see Durant just sit the whole year out as someone who really appreciates great basketball players and does not want to see guys have catastrophic injury. um, I would really hate to see him kind of – maybe he wouldn't be rushing back but that injury is so serious and so difficult to recover from in the first place. Frankly, we just watched DeMarcus Cousins struggle through injury, you know, as he was coming back. Now he had been back on the court for a while, um, but still had another injury that looked pretty serious in the finals and struggled to kind of really become himself again after that as well for long stretches. Um, Durant is just too important. And I mean, Contract-wise, to the game in in general, um, I really don't want to see him risk it. And, you know, I I imagine at this point that the Nets wouldn't want to see that either and wouldn't allow him to. Um, They're going to have a point where they say, look, the situation is what it is. You've healed. You're you're 100% healed. At this point, you're not going to do damage to it. that wouldn't have happened at some point anyway. But I would love to just, you know, maybe just for my peace of mind, which obviously doesn't matter here. Um, I would love to sit out the year and get healthy. And if that means the Nets are a full year away from really contending or competing again, then so be it. I mean, I don't think anyone expected for them to have a shot in winning a title this year unless they had two guys that were game changers like Durant and Kyrie anyway. Um, And once Durant went down, we knew that he likely wasn't going to be available for much of this season. And and that's fine, especially in light – of what we just saw in the final. I think we all should just want to see him healthy at this point. And like I said, it's not to suggest that the Nets will put him out there anything less than 100%. But if that means more than just this season and that he takes next summer to rehab and recover as well, then then so be it. And I think that that would be a wonderful thing just to make sure that he's completely. Yeah. And
2: I think a couple of, factors with that I don't think Durant again after last year as you said I don't think that he's going to push back for for a playoff run after what happened and, and I think the Nets I mean this isn't um, and, and again we did, we don't really know what happened with Golden State but he was a free agent that's not the case with Brooklyn. It's not only risking, it would not only be risking Durant, but I mean, this is the the franchise investment for the next four years. And I, I think we all believe, as we've just discussed, that the Nets uh, are not going to win a title unless they have Kevin Durant playing, uh, as they currently constructed anyway. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I would love to see him back at full strength, start the 2020 season, but uh, I look, I, I think we're touching most of the most of the top teams that that I wanted to run through. Obviously, Toronto is really interesting. I, I guess I would just ask uh, quickly whether you think is Kyle? Larry, I mean, what are you doing if you're the Raptors right now with this roster? Is it? too difficult to trade Kyle Larry? I don't know. I mean, it's just an interesting now makeup of this roster, obviously aging and and they had to go all in and and try and get Kawhi Leonard and run it back. But, but what do they do now? They're probably a playoff team in the East. I mean, they are going to be a playoff team, but they don't feel like a a contender. So if you are uh, the Raptors, what are you looking at from this season?
1: I mean, yeah, the, the Lowry question is, is huge, obviously. Uh, He obviously still has a lot of value just as far as um, you know that he can be a championship-caliber point guard on a championship-level team. Um, You also do get occasional inconsistency from him, particularly, I think, when you have another guy who can really score. He can disappear at times as far as the scoring. Uh, But I think he's an impact player in other ways. So, yeah, I I could absolutely see a situation where a team, especially in February, decides – we got to make something happen here. We need an upgrade at this position and decides it's worth it to to make a deal for him. Um, I think Gasol will be interesting in that way too, because I think what is he in the last year all, yeah. of his contract now that he opted in. And so Gasol will be interesting. Um, you know, the Raptors, I think the only thing that we know for sure at this point with their situation is that they, they obviously want to move forward. Uh, with Siakam, I think he was a huge revelation for them this past season. And, you know, I, I think that they, on some level, looked at what was reported about Kawhi and the idea of Oklahoma City, basically Kawhi's folks putting pressure on the Raptors to deal with Oklahoma City, um, to, you know, to basically trade for Paul George, but also maybe to take Westbrook on as well. And that maybe that would seal the deal for for someone like Kawhi, I, I don't think you could afford to do that. And I think that alone tells you that uh, between that and, you know, before you were over here in the States, um, Masai Ujiri was very, very clear-eyed in, in the sense of, you know, first of all, he got a draft pick, multiple draft picks back for Andrea Bargnani, who was really yeah. horrible at that time. and got literally a first-round pick from the Knicks. He was prepared to trade Kyle Lowry at a time for Amon Schumpert, which now seems kind of laughable. But he also got Rudy Gay out of town at a time where fans there, I, I want to say in Toronto, were kind of ready to revolt because at that point, Rudy Gay was still kind of viewed as a big name. And, you know, Toronto is not necessarily skilled at bringing in big names that they haven't drafted. Um, but he was terribly inefficient at the time and was not really a model sort of citizen from the standpoint of analytics and everything um, and seemed to be kind of more focused on his own numbers where uh, if you look back far enough, I want to say there was an anecdote in a story or someone wrote a story that was sourced or something that said that Rudy Gay said he wanted stat sheets to stop being printed and sent to the locker room or something like that because (laughs) of, you know, he was struggling statistically, but didn't look around. Like, you know, the stat sheet was like his, you know, his worst friend, so to speak. And so, They got him out of there, and it was not a popular move. But that alone, those sorts of things show you, um, especially – and DeMar DeRozan, obviously, the trade to get Lowry – or I'm sorry, to get Kawhi obviously was the right move. Like, no one can question that in their right mind. The right move at the time clearly is the right move now. But that should show you that Masai is not wedded to emotion when it comes to this, that he – can separate those two things and look at what's best for his team, even if it means keeping the best player you've ever had, maybe, or the biggest difference maker you've ever had in your history, that you don't, you're not even really willing to have a real conversation about the idea of going all the way in beyond just committing to Kawhi, but also committing to Paul George and committing to the idea of having Russell Westbrook potentially too. It, it doesn't shock me that he might not have wanted to really engage in a conversation at that level, because if you're doing that, and particularly if you're doing that, and if you're giving up somebody like a Siakam, who's the one guy that you've got that you feel really good about your future with, um, on no level would that have made sense. And so, you know, Mathai is the most sensible executive in the league, maybe, um, and so it, it doesn't shock me to hear that that he would not do that, but it also Wouldn't surprise me if he's got different things up his sleeve. He obviously could point to his track record alone as reason to want to sign with that team when they've got the cap space. And to make something really good come of it, yeah.
2: I, I look. I think that's that's always going to be a big factor. We know that the Raptors, obviously, as you said, uh, are going to be planning for the future, regardless of what they do with Kyle Lowry. I know, uh, obviously, there's a connection with Giannis, and, and you know, Bucks fans don't want to talk about it too much, but uh, I'm sure that that is part of of the plan for Messiah moving forward. But uh, I, look, I, I really think that. As we've sort of discussed, uh, the East is just interesting because I, I, I do think that the Bucks and the Sixers are at the top. But then after that, there is a whole cluster of teams and I really have no idea which way it is going to pan out. The Pacers are another team we didn't even touch on. I think with Oladipo back, when you pair him with Brogdon, uh, pending health for, for both guys, that that's another team Uh we know really well coached under McMillan they play a great defense, they're gonna be a really good defensive team again and they're gonna be around the mark. Um I I don't know. The East might not be as glamorous as the as the West, but it, it might be a pretty entertaining uh playoff
1: race. Yeah, no, I I think the East is fine. I just like you said, I think we we tend to talk about the interest level and the strength of each conference. By how many of these teams could realistically win the championship? And I think, you know, as much as and I've, i I made this running joke uh, a couple of times last year. You would think that I was like a, a, <laughs> a Pacers Homer, so to speak. Not so much because of what I write, but because of the fact that, you know, last year I wrote a, a longer feature about the Pacers. The year before that, I did that, and it's funny because after a while. My editor even asked, he's like, is there a reason you keep writing about the pacers each year? You know, a story or two each year on them? And I was like, Well, why are you asking? He's like, Because they consistently bring in the least readers. That the stories you know, I've written stories that, you know, that may not do as well or um, you know, they're in the tens of thousands of reads compared to what I normally write, which is, you know, normally six figures or more than that as far as how many people read each piece. the Pacers consistently kind of check in with the the smallest. And I don't particularly care about that. I I always want to write about the teams I find to be most interesting. But, you know, they they weren't – it was funny. Like, everybody was kind of uh, projecting, like, which team is going to get the NBA TV series um, once the playoffs start. And, you know, the Pacers without Oladipo were just not fun to watch. Um, With Oladipo, I think they are more fun to watch, clearly – Um, And I think when you add Jeremy Lamb to the situation, you give them Brogdon, you know, no, it's not necessarily going to get ESPN's attention as like a team we need to show on ESPN 25 times a year. But they should be good. Um, You know, we mentioned Miami earlier and Miami will be interesting at a very, at a very minimum. I think the idea that Jimmy Butler will be there, I think they would have been more interesting if they gotten. Westbrook, although I don't really know that it would have made them a top tier team in the East either to have had both him and Butler on the same team. So you've definitely got some interesting stuff there. I think the Pistons getting Derek Rose, um, particularly when you watched how important yeah. it was for Ish Smith even to be healthy in their rotation last year. Their um, win loss record when Ish Smith played versus when he did not. And it doesn't ever seem like a guy you know, a backup point guard who's 5'10 or however tall he actually is should be that big of a difference maker. But that team just had no guys that really could create shots for other people aside from Blake Griffin and Reggie Jackson. And and quite frankly, there were a lot of times where Ish Schmidt was kind of better at doing that for other people than Reggie Jackson was. So, you know, the Derrick Rose signing for the Pistons could actually be really – Impactful. Who knows whether it helps them or hurts them in light of Rose's injury history, but um, all, all sorts of things. We talked about Boston and how different they're going to look and how I want to see now their defense. Um, you know, I do think even though Kyrie is not a, a great defender by any means, or sometimes not even a good defender, um, the drop off between he and Kimba from a defensive standpoint will be interesting to watch. Um, clearly the drop off from, uh, Horford to cancer will be huge, uh, defensively. And so we have to watch that. Um, there are all sorts of things, that, you know, I have no clue how that will shake out. I have no clue how Orlando will look. I, you know, I, I like the idea that they picked up Aminu, um, and thought they did it on a pretty good contract. So there's all sorts of things to look at to consider the bulls could be in the mix for a spot if, if if they really get off to a, a decent start with a much improved roster, I think, without getting any stars, um, they could take a a really big leap. And so we just have to see. I mean, I I don't think it'll be interesting like the West from the standpoint of there are five or six teams here that you can make a real argument for for being a champ. But I do think that, you know, watching who makes the playoffs, that generally is always interesting to me in the East. And I, I think that, you know... People talk about them in different ways. Yeah, well, I, I, I,
2: I certainly would agree. Again, obviously, uh, we'll spend a lot of time watching the box again, but uh, I think for Bucs fans that have listened to this, uh, it was good to get – uh, obviously another voice in the podcast and I, I think that they will be happy that you also agree that with most people that they're going to be a top team and they'll probably uh, lose some more sleep over the, the Bucks nuts side in Boston. so uh, they'll have another, another couple of months to, to sweat on that one but, uh, but Chris, uh, thanks again uh, for, for taking the time on Friday morning to go through all this stuff with you I've held you up with an hour uh, for an hour, but uh just before we do let you go i know uh a lot of people were talking about this uh when, when you tweeted out the first time but you're a busy man right now working on a book uh how far along are you with this this is uh blood on the hardwood is that the final is that the final title is that is that locked in
1: it's it's not um it's it's a book about the knicks uh from the 90s which um, <laughs> you know, it's funny, people probably either love or hate that team if you're a New Yorker and you're a fan of it, you probably love that team if you're not, particularly if you're from where I live in Chicago, you probably did not like that team very much, uh, led by Pat Riley and Patrick Ewing and all them um, to your question, I am about 50 interviews into it, which probably sounds like a lot to the average person, but you know, it's not nearly as far as I want to get as far as, um, you know, how many people I'd like to talk to by the end of it. Um, I'm hoping to get 150 or 200 people at least um, to talk with me for it and just kind of working my way through it. It's a really difficult gig. You know, I don't know if I can even call it a job, but like, it's a very difficult task to do it when you write full time during the season. I obviously ran into you a couple times. Milwaukee you know, um, and was there during the playoffs, was there during the season. And, you know, I'm I'm in a lot – you know, I travel a lot during the season. And so to do that, um, you know, I didn't this past year, but to teach at Northwestern like I often do uh, for graduate school journalism, it's just really hard to set aside time to do other stuff full-time or close to full-time and then to try to put ample time into the book. So this is the first two-month stretch I've really had where – most days I get to really just kind of pour hours into the project. Um, so, like I said, I've done a lot of interviews. Um, I'm writing about an eight or a nine year period. And so I've been able to do quite a bit of um, research too, or I'm only 32. You know, when you do the math on the 90s Knicks, starting from 91, you know, that team first played 20, what was it, 28 years ago or so. And so I'm writing about a time period that I wasn't. Really old enough to have watched up close. I definitely did not cover these guys. I did not know these guys, and so having to do day by day research of an eight or nine year period um, and reading literally every news clip that was ever written mentioning Pat Riley and the Knicks in conjunction, or you know Pat Ewing and Patrick Ewing and the Knicks, or what have you. That is a really uh, labor intensive process where you're reading tens of thousands of articles on, on them. Uh, which I won't say I've enjoyed doing that necessarily, but it is interesting to, to read all that stuff and, you know, stuff that either I wasn't aware of or stuff that gives me better context or, you know, I think the most interesting thing in a project like that really is to read stuff that when you read it in the moment, you can tell it wasn't perceived to be a big deal at all by the media But then, you know, as you read it and you know what's going to happen based on us being in present day, as opposed to 1991 or 1992, reading it, knowing that it's going to have huge ramifications down the line for something. And so, um, you know, on one level, Pat Riley um, not signing an extension with the Knicks right away. Um, And the idea that in the moment you just want to iron out some different details but then realizing that that would sit on his desk for more than a year and a half and they would never get an extension done. And he would leave in really controversial fashion, like reading stuff like that and all sorts of other things, little puzzle pieces that you're able to put together based on different things. But, you know, that's interesting. And that's kind of fun to me to read that. But the interviews I've done, um, some of them have just been like so crazy where I'm like, my eyes kind of pop out of my head where I'm like, did someone just really tell me this or... Did this really happen? And the process of having to go through and verify and confirm and, you know, and, and just talking with people about memories that it's funny, they'll say that they don't think they have much to help with. And then I'm on the phone with them for 15 minutes. And I kind of shrug their memory by asking them a question about something they haven't been asked in 30 years. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, I do remember that. And it leads to the next story and the next story. And then you look up and it's two hours later and we're still on the phone. Um, because there's just so much to talk about. they've never been asked about this stuff because frankly you know teams that don't win the whole thing are very rarely written about in this way. Um, so it's been kind of amazing from that standpoint point. It's very fun. Um, it is very labor intensive like I said it'll probably take me more to like the next year um, probably June of next year to truly finish the process um, and turn it into my editors. But I'm hoping that we can come out with it late next year. And I'm hoping that it'll be really entertaining for fans and, and and even people that might not have been fans of the team that just kind of want to read about some of these figures and really about an era that we just will never see again as far as the physicality it presented, as far as, you know, the, in some cases, the personalities that were just never written about. Anthony Mason is obviously kind of a legendary figure for the Knicks. Um, Charles Oakley being another... Uh, John Starks, a guy that, you know, was bagging groceries before he made it into the NBA um, and played at five different colleges. Um, so just stories that are unusual that maybe some people have heard. But there's going to be plenty in the book that people have not heard that I'm, I can't wait to kind of uncover and write about for the first time. Yeah, I
2: mean, that that's probably uh, why, why I'm so excited about that. Because, as you said, I mean, I'm 28. I, I didn't watch <laughs> these next teams, but it's crazy to me to think now how far... Uh, uh, or how long ago that was. Now, uh, when you consider there's, there's players playing in the NBA that weren't even born when those teams were playing, but uh, I think oftentimes, I think oftentimes the teams that don't win uh, the title, as you said, those stories get lost, and uh, I think that's going to be the exciting thing. But uh, again, uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time here to to jump on. Uh, I've really enjoyed the chat, and uh, I always appreciate uh, any chance to to have a chat with you.
1: Absolutely! Thank you so much for inviting me on. And go get some sleep now that now that we've reached what one fifteen your time or whatever it is.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's Saturday. Uh, it's Saturday morning here. One fifteen. I am going to call it quits. But uh, Ty, will be back next week. Uh, we're going to wrap up everything from the from the G League uh, press conference the other day, and the Team USA is going to have uh, their team announced. So. It probably looks like definitely Chris Middleton, maybe Brooke Lopez as well, are going to be heading out my way uh, to play in Melbourne uh, in about two weeks' time. So uh, that's going to be fun. But we'll be back next week with another episode. So uh, subscribe, download, do all the things you need to do, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week.